A reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are representing? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant in the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself and everyone life and breath and everything else. Because from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, 
and also a woman named Demarius and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. As I said earlier, my name is Jeremy, and it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm originally from a small town in Alaska. I lived in Seattle and Chicago for a while, and I've been in Los Angeles for 11 years now. And it is just a joy and a privilege to be here with you today. I want to start off by saying thank you to Dr. Sweeney for inviting me. Um, Dr. Sweeney is not only a model as a theologian who loves the Lord and loves the church, but he's been a mentor of mine and many others. And so thank you for having me here. I want to preach today on Acts chapter 17 and talk to you about proclaiming Christ in a pagan society. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about a painting in the Metropolitan Museum in Manhattan that's called The Vision of St. John. This is by the Greek painter El Greco, who did this in the 17th century. It's a massive painting, and it's a picture of Revelation 6, where the martyrs are receiving white robes, and John is reaching upward towards God. But the painting that they currently have in the Metropolitan Museum is just a fragment of the original. Uh, you see, in uh, the 1800s, as a result of the Enlightenment, in, a name of, in the name of improving the painting, they lopped off the top five feet of it, cutting off the heavens in the picture. And so the arms of John reach upward, but to nothing. And the martyrs who are receiving gifts, who are they receiving them from? I think that this painting is a parable of our society today. We've attempted to remove God and replace him with the sovereign individual who creates his own identity and lives for his own purpose. But here's the thing. Like the painting, even when we try to remove God from the picture, we're still reaching. It's as if we've tried to suppress our longing for the spiritual realm, but it just keeps pushing through like an undeniable part of who we are. And so we long for transcendence, but people today are looking to crystals instead of Christ. We long for power, and so it's no surprise that the fastest growing religion in America is witchcraft. We long for guidance, but people look to stars and to astrology for this. I'll tell you where I live in Los Angeles. Uh, it's a hyper-religious city. We talk about the world being secular today, but people are hungry for God, and that's cropping up in all, all different types of ways. I hear conversations of spirituality all the time on the streets of Los Angeles. And where our church building is in East Hollywood, I'll just give you a little glimpse of the lay of the land spiritually. Uh, immediately to the east of us is Scientology. A block to the north of us is the Church of Self-Realization. Across the, across the street to the south is a tarot card reader. And just down the street to the west is the Armenian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. It's hyper-spiritual. And the world is becoming more religious and spiritual. And so in a secular world, faith doesn't disappear. It simply reappears in other forms. And so the question is, how can we proclaim Christ in a society that doesn't recognize his rule and is worshiping all kinds of other gods in his place? And so to answer that question, 
I want to look to the Apostle Paul's experience in the city of Athens, as it's recorded in Acts 17. Paul walks through the city and observes all of their idols. And I'll tell you what Paul didn't do. He didn't attack them as an enemy, creating an us versus them scenario where he had to defeat them in an argument in order to win them for Christ. And I want to summarize what he did with the phrase subversive fulfillment. I first heard this phrase from my friend Dan Strange, but the idea is really present throughout the scriptures. And here's what I mean by, by subversive fulfillment. You affirm the longings, you challenge the method of how people pursue those longings, and then you point to Jesus as the fulfillment. And so I want to show you how that's what Paul does in Athens and how it's what we can do in order to proclaim Christ in a pagan environment as well. So we've already had the reading of the word, but let me open our time with a word of prayer and then I'll walk us through this text. God, we come before you today mindful of the fact that as we open our Bibles, that we have the risen Christ speaking to us today. May we remember that we are not just talking about Christ. We are in the presence of the risen and reigning Christ who has poured out his spirit upon us that, we, that he might open our eyes and that we would see and understand and apply the riches and depths of your word. And so God, would you give us understanding today? Would you help us to see Jesus clearly for who he is but would you also help us then to understand how to follow him and proclaim him in the world that we're in today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to picture you, I want to invite you to picture the Apostle Paul walking through the city of Athens. Athens was the cultural capital of the world. There's theaters and gymnasiums and temples everywhere. And Athens was especially known for its gods. There was a saying in the ancient world that it was easier to find a god than a person in the city of Athens. There was statues everywhere of gods and representations of them all over. I mean, imagine walking through Times Square and think of all the LED screens. It's like that, but there are gods everywhere. There's Ares, the god of war. There's Poseidon, the god of the sea. There's Aphrodite, the god of love and sex. But Paul is not just walking through the city. He's been teaching in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And so they hear of these strange teachings that he has, and they invite him to the Areopagus, which was this kind of outdoor amphitheater. And you've got to remember, in their day, they didn't have academic journals. They didn't have magazines. They didn't have social media. If you wanted to hear from someone, you had to do it orally usually. And this is in a culture where most people are illiterate and um, they're growing up learning rhetoric. And so the Areopagus is a place where they would come and have different people speak and present different philosophical ideas and the judges would weigh their speeches. It's a America's Got Talent uh, Greek philosophy version. And so what does Paul say when he gets invited to the Areopagus? Well, let's pick up in verse 22 in Acts chapter 17. It tells us, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So again, I want you to notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't take an oppor- this as the opportunity to get up before all of them and say, you're heretics, you're wrong, I'm right, repent and convert. No, what does he do? He begins by affirming their longings. You're very religious. It's good. We're not that different. We're made for more. We're wired for worship. God has put eternity in our hearts. So Paul affirms their longings, but then he challenges their method, the way that they're going about fulfilling those longings. And so he starts poking holes in their religious hopes showing that their objects of worship are not adequate to fulfill their longings. Look at verse 24. He says to the God, or sorry, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I mean, Paul's saying this when he's probably 50 yards away from the Acropolis, atop of which sits the temple of Athena, the Parthenon. He's saying, the, the real God doesn't live in temples made by man. He goes on in verse 25, and he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's saying, your gods need you. <laughs> like, you made them. Why would you worship something that you made? It needs you, not the other way around. He goes on in verse 26 and says, And he, the real God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's saying, your gods are territorial gods. They're they're only responsible for part of the earth. Can you imagine a God who reigns over the world and over not just one people, but the nations? He says in 27, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. He's saying your desires for worship are good, but they're misdirected. But you're not far. God is near. He goes on in verse 28 then to quote their own Greek poets. He's talking to the Greeks here. He's not talking in the synagogue to the Jews. So he refers to their own authorities and he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he connects to their culture by quoting their poets in order to redirect their hearts to the one true God. He's saying, you are right to worship, but your gods are just man-made idols and they can't keep their promises. They can't even speak. They can't even listen. They can't feel They can't keep their promises. And so what has he done? He affirms their longings, and then he challenges their methods about how they try and fulfill those longings, and then he points to Jesus as the fulfillment. And so we've already seen that he said, he he saw this altar with with an inscription to the unknown God, and he's been telling them about who that is. But the climax of this passage comes in verses 30 and 31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
So this is the apex of the sermon. Paul is not presenting an idea or a theory or a proposition. He's proclaiming a person and his name is Jesus. He's saying to them and to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all our longings and hopes. And Paul especially wants to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus. He's not merely a historical figure. He's a living savior. He's not a spiritual guru. He's the king of creation. He's not just a rabbi clothed with wisdom. He took, he's God who took on flesh. All our longings and hopes are fulfilled in Jesus. Maybe that's a word that you need to hear today. That he is the one who brings healing to wounds, who brings forgiveness to our sin. Jesus, the risen Jesus, is the one who gives rest to the weary and hope to the desolate. He gives freedom to those who are in captivity. It's this risen Christ that is our hope. But I also want you to notice how Paul presents Jesus as the apex of a story. He begins with God's creation and goes all the way to the final judgment. See, we don't just need to pick apart cultural narratives. We need to offer a more compelling narrative. The narrative of a gracious God renewing his broken world through self-giving love. But I do want you to notice in this story that this idea of subversive fulfillment doesn't mean going soft or being non-confrontational. No, he calls them to repent. And he talks about the judgment of God, that they are going to stand before God as judge. The point that I'm trying to make in what, in what I'm trying to teach out of Acts 17 is it's more about the way that you get to Christ. It's not, you're wrong, I'm right, you need to convert. It's more your longings are valid, but you're going about it the wrong way. And Jesus is the fulfillment. So turn from your sin and trust in Christ. That is how Paul proclaims Christ in a pagan society. So what about us, though? We're not in Athens. And I'll tell you this, I, I certainly don't know Birmingham very well. This is my first time here. And so I'm not going to even attempt to apply to this context. But let me talk a little bit about how I see this in Los Angeles. And maybe that can be an example that could help you to do the same here or forever, wherever the Lord is leading you. I recently went on a walk on Sunset Boulevard and I tried, uh, like Paul, to observe the religious impulse of my city, the City of Angels. And as I walked down Sunset and looked around at the billboards and the stores and the signs, I was overwhelmed and thought, Los Angeles, you are very religious. See, we may, not, we may not have statues of Greek gods, but there are objects of worship everywhere. And I want to walk through several of these objects of worship that I noticed in Los Angeles and talk about how we might approach these through this idea of subversive fulfillment. So the first thing I noticed, the first object of worship, and this would be no surprise to anyone that I noticed in Los Angeles, is fame. LA is the home of the Oscars and the Grammys and the Kardashians and LeBron and many other celebrities. And so many people come to LA to, to be discovered, to make it, to become famous. And so how do we engage with this pursuit of fame? Well, we could just 
have an adversarial mindset and condemn it as pure narcissism and a worldly pursuit of pride. But how would we think about this in terms of subversive fulfillment? Well, first, I think there's longings to affirm here. There's a deep religious impulse at the root of this. We were made for glory. We were meant to experience awe and wonder as we're drawn into something greater and more majestic than ourselves. But rather than reflecting the glory of God, we try to absorb the glory of man. In other words, we settle for fame as a cheap substitute for glory. And so we're willing to trade an eternity of basking in divine radiance for 15 minutes in the spotlight, even though it ultimately leaves us in the dark. And so allow me to quote one of the philosophers of our day. Uh, Jim Carrey once said this, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. But here's the thing. The longing for glory can be fulfilled. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And as 2 Corinthians 3 says, we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. As I was walking down Sunset Boulevard, another object of worship that I noticed was sexual liberation. The billboards and advertisements throughout my city proclaim a gospel of sexual liberation. In fact, one of my daughters recently, I have four young daughters, and uh, one of them recently said, Dad, why are the billboards, why are all the billboards about clothing companies? Why do they always have people on them that aren't wearing any clothing? <laughs> It's a good question, uh, because there's a promise behind this. There's something in the water. There's, there's an object of worship of sexual liberation. And the idea is simply this. It's that we've been imprisoned by traditional sexuality, that, where we're told to suppress our desires and then live a boring life. But the good news of this gospel is that you can break the religious shackles and express your sexuality, hook up with whoever you want, and it will bring true freedom. Now, there's some things that we can affirm here. The longing for liberation and seeing sex as a significant aspect of that. But we certainly need to challenge the means. This supposed gospel hasn't brought liberation. It's actually brought another form of slavery. Louise Perry is a British journalist who wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she argues that while the sexual revolution promised freedom for women, what it really did was create a sexual playground for men to hook up with anyone apart from relational commitment and without consequences. And so when it comes to women, she argues, the sexual revolution has objectified women, sexualized women, enslaved women, and called it liberation. I'll give you a really tangible example of this. Bridget Fatassi is a comedian who describes herself as a sex-positive feminist, and she used to be a columnist for Playboy. She wrote an article titled, I Regret Being a Slut. And in that article, she talks about how she was living a life of sexual freedom, doing whatever she wants. Let me quote her. Here's what Bridget Fatassi says. If I get really honest with myself, I'd say most of these usually drunken encounters left me feeling empty and demoralized and worthless. I wouldn't have said that at the time though. At the time, I would have told you I was liberated even while I tried to drink away the sick feeling of rejection when my most recent hookup didn't call me back. At the time, I would have said one night stands made me feel emboldened, but in reality, 
I was using sex like a drug, trying unsuccessfully to fill a hole inside. The lie I told myself for decades was, I'm not in pain, I'm empowered. See, the gospel of sexual liberation is not good news. And yet this freedom that people are longing for can truly be found in Christ. And it comes not through creating our own identity through sexual deviance, but receiving God's grace that covers our sin. And then that can play out sexually, either, in, either through covenant marriage between a man and a woman, or singleness and chastity in the context of deep friendship and spiritual family. A third object of worship that I noticed in Los Angeles was inclusivity. As I walked down the street, I saw a sign that said, everyone welcome. I saw another banner that said, we love all humankind with a rainbow flag next to it. I saw a billboard that said, celebrate everything with trans people underneath that, um, underneath that phrase. And so there's a lot that we can affirm here in the longings with inclusivity. As Christians, we believe that all people are made in the image of God and worthy of respect and love. And God has called us to be a hospitable people who welcomes in the outcasts. But we also have to challenge the way that people go about this. Uh, is this group really that inclusive after all? Uh, I question that because if you disagree politically, you'll get cast out. Or if you have different views on sexuality, you'll get called out. Or if you agree but have something that's dug up from your past, you'll get canceled. And yet, under the name of tolerance, this is just a new fundamentalism that excommunicates anyone who blasphemes the new orthodoxy of the progressive agenda. And yet, this longing for inclusivity is good, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He truly invites all people to himself, and his disciples included people from all walks of life. I mean, just think about politically, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. They would have been natural enemies on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Jesus invites them in together. And he invites in the outcasts, not by drawing a line that separates good people and bad people, but by laying down his life to include outcasts from all walks of life. And then the fourth and last object of worship that I noticed in Los Angeles, and this is certainly true beyond, is self. You hear people talking on the streets, be true to yourself, be the best version of yourself. You do you, follow your heart. The idea in our society is look within, determine who you are based on your desires and broadcast it to the world. I don't have a creator, I am my own creator. So I choose my identity, I choose my gender, I choose my purpose. This is the narrative of the sovereign self. But just listen to how Jesus um, brings this approach of subversive fulfillment to this idea of self-worship. Jesus says in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So yes, it's a good thing to want to understand yourself, to have an identity and a purpose in life. But the irony is, the more you obsess over yourself, the more miserable you will be. It's in denying yourself and looking to Christ that we experience this true purpose and joy and have an identity that is unshakable. Now, while I want you to see this idea of subversive fulfillment, of 
affirm the longings, challenge the method, and point to fulfillment in Christ. Or a short version of that is, yes, no, Jesus. (laughs) Yes, I agree with you there. No, that's not the way to go about it. Let me show you how Jesus is the answer of everything that you're longing for. So I want you to see that as a way of proclaiming Christ in our society. I just want to close by acknowledging, though, the simplicity of presenting Jesus. That's the best thing that we have to offer. Not a great strategy, not a philosophical idea of simply pointing people to Jesus. That's what Paul did. And if you look at verses 32 through 34, what you see is that some mocked him, some were curious, and some believed. It says, even Dionysius the Areopagite becomes a follower of Jesus. And so when it comes to how we proclaim Christ in a pagan society, we need to be as persuasive as possible. We need to understand the culture that, we, that we're in. But may we remember that the power is in Jesus himself. It's not in us. It's not in our strategies. It's not in our society. It's that Christ is risen. He's alive. He's been exalted and is drawing people to himself. And so my final challenge for you is to experience Christ, to know the living and reigning Christ, and to let your life be an overflow of that. I'll never forget when I sat down with Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe uh, is in his mid-70s. He was my, my wife's parents' pastor for decades. He baptized my wife when she was in college. And whenever I go back to Covington, Indiana, where my wife is from, small town, I I visit with Pastor Joe, and the first time I met with him, I said, Pastor Joe, I I, want to be like you. I want to be faithful, preaching the gospel into my 70s. I said, what what advice would you have for me? And he said, well, Jeremy, a lot of young pastors that I know, they focus on the breadth of their ministry. How many people can they reach? How far can the gospel go? And he said, "And, and, you know, there's a good redeemed understanding of that ambition. He said, but my challenge to you is this. You focus on the depth of your relationship with Jesus and let him determine the breadth of your ministry. And that's my word for you today. Christ is risen. He's reigning. We can know him today. And as we experience the transformation of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, may our lives then be an overflow of that, of witnessing to Christ in whatever society we find ourselves in. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, and that he has ascended to your right hand and is reigning over all. And so, Lord, we thank you that in your providence that you have placed us in this time in which we live, in these places in which we live, and you have called us to witness to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to do that, boldly, winsomely, passionately. But God, we ultimately recognize that it's only you who can change the heart. It's only you who can open the eyes of the blind and give hope to the lost. And so God, we do pray for the nations. We pray that many would come to know you. And we simply say, here we are, Lord, send us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.